Hello and welcome to The World Ahead on Economist Radio. I'm Anne McElvoy. In this Future Gazing podcast series, we consider speculative scenarios, what-if conjectures and provocative prophecies. Thinking about possible futures can help us understand the present and the various paths along which events might unfold in future. Today, we'll be asking forward-looking questions inspired by The World in 2019. That's The Economist's annual publication, considering the year ahead. And coming up, can Justin Trudeau win re-election as Prime Minister of Canada? Canadians often give a leader two terms, at least, but I wouldn't say that's in the bag for Mr. Trudeau this time. What does the future hold for the regulation of artificial intelligence? I'm really not seeing any sign that politicians are engaging with any of these policy questions. And I travel to China's new record-breaking bridge to understand why some consider it a symbol of the country's future intentions. It is a remarkable just physical presence, but it does also symbolise this connection to China, which becomes more and more palpable. But first to Canada, where it's shaping up to be a turbulent year for current Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Although, as a country, Canada's been relatively insulated from populism and polarisation, there are signs that this may be about to change. To discuss that, I'm joined on the phone from Ottawa by Madeleine Drohan, The Economist's Canada correspondent. So Madeleine, to the outside world, Canadian populism sounds a bit like a contradiction in terms. But what does populism look like in Canada and how would we recognise it? Well, Canada isn't immune from populism. And we have to remember that this is an election year in Canada. And so the opposition conservatives are trying to stoke any populist impulse that they see out there. And there are some among the Canadian population. There are some who are fearful of immigrants. There are some who think that they've been dealt a bad lot in life. And of course, there are these workers from manufacturing industries, and I'm thinking of autos here in particular, that are losing their jobs due to technology and trade and want to blame someone for it. And Justin Trudeau, Liberal Prime Minister, something of a Liberal poster boy in the outside world. Elections coming this year, to what extent does he embody lots of things populists might want to rail against? Mr. Trudeau has made himself unpopular with some of these populists by being very openly supportive of immigration and, in fact, raising the levels of immigrants every year that are coming in. But what populists have been picking on with the Trudeau government is there have been immigrants from the U.S., asylum seekers, really, who are walking across the border and taking advantage of a loophole in Canadian law that allows them just to walk across the border between official posts and then claim asylum. And this has really attracted the attention of the populace and the conservatives who are saying it's a crisis, although really in terms of numbers, it's been about 35,000 people over the last two years. And what do you think is likely to happen? I think we've seen one main opposition figure there, Doug Ford, out and about making some populist noises, talking about the rich. Elites are in all three parties. They're in the NDP, they're in the Liberals, and they're in uh, the the PC parties, people that look down on the average common folk. And, they, you know, when they have their little glass of champagne with their pinkies up in the air, you know, looking down like, uh, you know, we're, we're better than you. 
very nice caricature image that he draws there, or not so nice. Do you feel that's got traction? Yes, I think it has. Doug Ford is the leader of Ontario, which is the biggest province in Canada, and he's also a progressive conservative leader, although I would hasten to take the progressive away from that. But he has followed what you would consider populist policies, you know, cutting taxes and interfering with business and things like that. I mean, his slogan is, Ontario is open for business. He's still relatively new, so it's hard to say how much broader traction his ideas will have with the Ontario populace. But they certainly have elected him, and that shows that there is support for that sort of politician in Canada. And if we move over to French-speaking Canada... Quebec, often very eventful politically in recent Canadian history. Does it feel different in the English and French-speaking parts of the country? I'm just interested in that. Yes, in Quebec, they uh, elected the Coalition for the Future of Quebec, which was a right-leaning group after many, many years of liberal rule there. Quebec is a province on its own, not only because it's French-speaking, but they do support more government involvement in the economy. But there the issue was immigration. Those 35,000 asylum seekers I spoke about earlier, most of them are actually walking across the border in Quebec. So that has made that particular immigration uh, a more sensitive issue in Quebec. And Mr. Legault, who is the leader of Quebec, the second most populous province in Canada, he made immigration an issue in his election campaign. He wasn't going to end it, but he was going to reduce it. And that's fairly unusual for Canada. And we often see leaders under pressure from populist forces kind of aping a bit of populism light themselves. Justin Trudeau, very media aware, quite savvy politician. Is he moving at all in that direction or is he staying true to those credentials that he earned as as one of the great favourites of the liberal internationalist movement when he took office? I would say Trudeau hasn't changed his policies, but he may have changed his rhetoric slightly. He talks a great deal about helping the middle class and those working hard to join it. So what in populist speak would be every man or the people. And it's interesting, he just had a cabinet shuffle where he appointed a new minister to a new portfolio we hadn't heard about, which was rural economic development. And that's a sure sign that he sees there's a weakness in rural areas. Areas, something that the populists and the conservatives, uh, which are sometimes the same thing, could exploit. So this shows that he's aware of the issues and is trying to address them ahead of the election. And the election coming in October, are you placing your bets? Does Mr. Trudeau walk away with the prize? No, surprisingly or not, the polls show that it, it's too close to call, and I would have to say that it really is too close to call. Canadians often give a leader two terms, at least, but I wouldn't say that's in the bag for Mr. Trudeau this time. Well, we'll have to come back and talk to you again this year. Thank you very much, Madeline. You're welcome. Coming up next, I'm joined by Tom Standage to discuss whether 2019 could be the year regulators rein in artificial intelligence. Right after this. Now, the term artificial intelligence might bring to mind visions of robots on the rampage, all replicating and replacing the jobs of mere humans. 
as in many a Hollywood film. The reality heading into 2019 is somewhat more domestic. AI lets people dictate text messages instead of typing them up, or call up music from a smart speaker while we're cooking in the kitchen. Although killer robots may be a few years away, we do need to think about meaningful regulation and what that might look like in years to come. Joining me in the studio is Tom Standage, our deputy editor. So, Tom, you've written about AI, not just about the potential of artificial intelligence, which we often discuss, but about pitfalls and particularly about what might need to be regulated. What are your concerns? Well, there are a number of concerns raised by what this technology can do. For example, people are very worried about the hoovering up of personal data that all the big tech companies are doing in order to train AIs. So there's a sort of personal data aspect to this. Then there's the sort of, are the big companies becoming dangerous monopolies because they've got more data than everyone else? So there's a sort of antitrust element to it. Then some people are worried about unaccountable AIs making decisions in a non-transparent way, algorithmic bias, that sort of thing. So that's a different concern as well. Then there are people worried about killer robots. Are we about to hand over life or death decisions to to machines and, and so on? That's a bit further away. But there are serious efforts to try and introduce legislation to outlaw autonomous machines and ensure that there's a human in the loop or on the loop. And then, of course, you've got the autonomous cars, which are another example of AI. We had the first pedestrian killed by an autonomous car in 2018. And so there is this concern that arises from the technology. That sounds like a long, how worried should we be list. But what regulations do we actually have at the moment? Well, at the moment, we have regulations in all those separate areas. So we have regulations about personal data. For example, we have the GDPR in Europe, which is being observed by quite a lot of companies in other parts of the world as well. That's personal data. Right, yes. so that's Accountability personal data. of my personal data. Exactly. Rate. And then we have things like antitrust, if you're worried about that. And then cars are obviously required to conform to various things, whether okay, or not Okay, what's the problem autonomous. then? Why well, does AI make a difference? So the question here is really, one approach you could take with AI is you could say, what we need is a regulator in each country that's a bit like the regulators we have for drugs. So they are specific to that particular field. So you have the FDA in the United States, for example. So do you need an FDA for AI or do you do what you do with, say, the internet? There isn't a regulator for the internet, but you do have rules in different areas, for example, for e-commerce or for privacy or whatever. And I would argue that what we need to be doing with regulating AI is taking the latter approach and adjusting existing regulations in all of these areas, and in some cases introducing new ones that take account of this new technology, but having a sort of super regulator, which some people have suggested that this is such a radical technology that we need a, you know, a special regulator that can issue rules just about AI. I think that's probably not the right approach. But it is often the case that more regulation ends up hampering innovation and it stymies the very gains that you might be able to otherwise acquire. Does that worry you at all? Well, there is a concern that it's too early to regulate this technology and, and so on. But I think at the same time, you can argue this is quite widely deployed already. And so I think to the extent that it's employed, it's important that there aren't breaches of existing rules in areas like privacy or in areas like discrimination. If you've got algorithms making choices about who gets hired, there's already laws on the books about that. And you don't really need to change them in order to deal with this. You just need to be aware of the possibility that if companies are using algorithms to decide who to interview, that there is a risk that they might be unwittingly discriminating. And so that is a a real issue, but I'm not sure you need a a new law there. But AI users 
current data, extrapolates from it, but uses data that we already have, doesn't it therefore mimic our biases? And don't we need to be perhaps more watchful about that? That's exactly the problem that happened. So Amazon developed a, a machine learning system that you could feed resumes into, and it would decide who was worth interviewing in the first round. And they trained it by essentially feeding it the resumes of the people who were their highest performing employees. And surprise, surprise, that was a very (laughs) male-dominated cohort. And as a result, they discovered that the machine learning system was actually discriminating against resumes that contained words like women's hockey team or women's rowing team or indeed women's, because that suggested that the applicant was female and therefore didn't match the profile of a high-performing employee. And so to their credit, they tried to fix this. And then eventually, even more to their credit, I think, they decided that this was not fixable and that this was not a good way to do the first scan of the resumes and they shut the whole thing down. But it's exactly the sort of thing that companies need to be a lot more vigilant about. And if I were to put you in charge of being the grand panjandrum artificial intelligence regulator, what would be the sector that you would give most attention to? To ask the old worried question, what what does make you most worried about all this? Well, I think there is an area, autonomous cars, I think, do need regulation. It's not because of AI, it's because they're cars. And At the moment in America, the default is you're allowed to do something unless there's a law that you can't. In the rest of the world, you're generally not allowed to put autonomous cars on the road unless you've got permission to do it. So it's a very different situation. And this is why nearly all testing of autonomous cars is happening in America. And I think we probably do need, and the industry would benefit from, a bit more regulation in this area, a bit more clarity about what they should be doing, what data they should be reporting to the authorities. Do they need black boxes on the cars? Do they need to have some kind of driving test? I mean, Singapore has a driving test for autonomous cars just to sort of give them a basic check to see how they perform. So I think that's an area where, weirdly, actually, despite what you might think, which is that companies don't want regulation, that's an area where they probably want a bit more in an area where people are concerned about the implications of handing over something to machine intelligences that humans used to handle. And this is clearly something that is happening now, but is likely to expand and that the problems or challenges are going to get much bigger as we look forward. What should we be looking to do that we're not doing now? One of the big fears people have about AI and automation is that you know the robots are going to take all the jobs and we're all going to be out of work. And that's quite a widespread concern that people have. There's not actually that much evidence for it. But if it is true that automation means that jobs are going to change, which it does look like they are, they're going to, the nature of jobs is going to change maybe more rapidly than it has before. People are going to have to learn skills more quickly. Skills are going to become perishable, as people in the field like to say. And we're going to need more emphasis on retraining, lifelong learning, and so on. If all that's true, then we really ought to be doing something about it now. And I'm really not seeing any sign that politicians are engaging with any of these policy questions. There has been a striking lack of policy response. And instead, when people are worried about jobs, it's much easier to blame outsourcing to China or immigrants. Those are vote-winning ways of responding to people's concerns about their jobs in the future. And saying, well, actually, we need to improve productivity and have more retraining and apprenticeship schemes and that sort of thing. There aren't politicians getting up on the stump and saying, these are the sorts of policies we need in a world where AI is much more widespread and has changed the workplace. And I think that's what's really worrying about it. So that's the area where I think policymakers need not regulation, but they need to actually start developing policy. Policy, they need to start applying real thought to artificial intelligence. Tom Standage, thank you very much. Thank you. And finally, in autumn of last year, Chinese President Xi Jinping officially opened the world's longest sea crossing bridge nine years after construction began. But why was it built? 
and why is it seen by some as a symbol of China's intentions for the future? I travelled to Hong Kong and crossed the bridge to find out for myself. I'm halfway across the world's longest sea-crossing bridge. It links Hong Kong to Zhuhai in mainland China and the former Portuguese colony of Macau. At 55 kilometers long, it's about 20 times as long as the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco. The intention is to enhance economic integration between Hong Kong and the Pearl River Delta. But there's also a political symbolism. It links Hong Kong firmly in a grandiose project to mainland China, and it's intended to signal a closening of ties between the two. I set off with Shu Zihe, who reports on the bridge for the China Daily Newspaper, to take a closer look. What do you think the purpose of this is in economic terms? So basically, Hong Kong is an, as we know, is an international financial and trade hub, and it relies on markets to expand the the economy. So the bridge will help Hong Kong to further attract more trading, more travelers, and try to build an economic engine for Hong Kong, like the San Francisco Bay Area, like the Tokyo Bay Area. So a new Economic engine for the whole big, the world's second largest economy. One person who's witnessed the change taking place in Hong Kong is the Economist's executive and diplomatic editor Daniel Franklin. He's also editor of the World in 2019. Busy man, so perhaps there's no one better to speak to about the relationship between China and Hong Kong and what the bridge really represents. Daniel, we've come to Hong Kong. I should say we've come back to Hong Kong. We've been a couple of times looking into the world ahead from the perspective of Asia. You've been coming a lot longer than I have. Take us back to when you first came to Hong Kong and what you saw then. Well, I suppose I first came before the handover when it was still a British colony, and always been excited by Hong Kong. But the great question. At the time, was how much would Hong Kong change under the one country, two systems dispensation? And it's been slow, and it's been interesting to see what has and what what hasn't changed. So you've been coming since before 1997, and as I dimly remember the big arguments then, it's about whether this whole idea of one country, two systems that was promised in the handover was sustainable. What have you seen over the years that? Gives us an impression of what worked out. I think for a long time it seemed it it was sustainable. Hong Kong didn't change fundamentally. Of course, there were the normal developments of a city.、Uh, it got a new airport.、Uh, it that actually helped the sense of being incredibly open to the world. Spanking new great building. Now I think there is a sense of greater concern, and that's crept in in recent years. It, it's crept in. Over a number of issues over many years, but especially recently, that、um, perhaps we're edging towards one country, one and a half systems. That the the distinctiveness of Hong Kong is being somewhat eroded. It's interesting that you, you talk about that desire was to kind of 
perhaps force a coming together of China and Hong Kong and the bridge that I've just travelled over today, the great bridge and tunnel project linking Hong Kong to the mainland is a sort of grandiose expression of that, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're both fascinated by it. It is a thing of beauty in terms of engineering, but it is there to send a very strong message. Well, it is a remarkable just physical presence and it connects Hong Kong to this extraordinary area of the Pearl River Delta, which is a, a vast economic zone which in its own right is a considerable force in the world. But it does also symbolise this connection to China, which becomes more and more palpable. So I think the hope among many people back at the time of the handover, for example, was that the Hong Kong model would transfer to China. China would become freer, more democratic, taking on more of the rule of law. In fact, what seems to be happening slowly is the other way around, that China mainland China is imposing itself on Hong Kong and insisting that things be done its way. And if that continues, and there's still a long way to go, Hong Kong is still a very different place, very distinctive. But if it continues, you have to wonder, what is the point of Hong Kong? What makes it different? I've just come back into Hong Kong from the mainland, from Zhuhai. And what my takeaway impression is, apart from the sheer grandeur of the project and how lovely it looks when you're halfway across this extraordinary length of bridge, is there are not that many other people using it. There's certainly some day trippers coming from the Chinese side into Hong Kong, probably to shop. But it's all very tightly controlled. For every one car that comes into Hong Kong, 10 have to go the other way. That's the, the formal agreement. Is that really going to happen? Is it going to link these two places in a bustling way, both economically and with all the political symbolism? We'll see. And that's all for this edition of The World Ahead. You can find out more about these stories at economist.com. And if you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? You can go to economist.com slash radio offer 12 issues for $12 or £12. Great value. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>